Section 21 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10. Political Parties in England. Part 2. Edward Russell, Earl of Orford, to a great extent, owed the confidence which the Whig party placed in him to the fact that he was the brother of the virtuous William Russell, who had been so shamefully executed for his supposed complicity in the Rye House plot. He had begun life in the Duke of York's household, and had there formed an early friendship with Marlborough. He was skilful both as a naval commander and as a manager of naval affairs, but he was of a grasping and ambitious character, and though it was not known till after his death, had lost all claim to the confidence of the Whigs by his secret communications with James at Saint-Germain. He had won popularity by his victory off La Hogue, and the Whigs believed that naval affairs could only prosper under his direction, but as a statesman he never gained distinction. These four men were the leaders of the Whig party during the reign of William III. Sunderland, the youngest member of the Junto, had only risen to importance in Anne's reign. He was in everything the follower of Summers, but he was wanting in tact and moderation, and the violence of his political opinions made Marlborough decidedly unwilling to do anything for his promotion in spite of the close tie that bound them together. In the Duchess, however, Sunderland had a firm friend. She never wearied of pushing his claims, and when Marlborough and Godolphin were obliged to lean more on the support of the Whigs, one of the most pressing demands of the Junto was that some post should be obtained for Sunderland, for as Marlborough's son-in-law he at least was entitled to advancement. But the Queen, besides her decided dislike to the Whigs, had a special dislike to Sunderland, and all that could be obtained for him at first was an appointment as Ambassador Extraordinary to Vienna in 1705. When Sunderland returned from Vienna in 1706, no effort was spared to get him made Secretary of State in place of Sir Charles Hedges, a Tory. The Queen showed the greatest objection to the change. She had a horror of falling into the hands of the Whigs. She writes to Godolphin, Why, for God's sake, must I, who have no interest, no end, no thought, but for the good of my country, be made so miserable as to be brought into the power of one set of men? And why may not I be trusted, since I mean nothing but what is equally for the good of all my subjects? There is another apprehension I have of Lord Sunderland being secretary, which I think is a natural one, which proceeds from what I have heard of his temper. I am afraid he and I should not agree long together, finding by experience my humor and those that are of a warmer will often have misunderstandings. I conclude begging you to consider how to bring me out of my difficulties, and never leave my service, for Jesus Christ's sake, for this is a blow I cannot bear. But Godolphin knew that the Whigs would not support the government unless Sunderland were made secretary. They had waited long enough without any reward for their services. Without their support, the war could not go on, and Godolphin did not cease to urge the Queen to give way. The Duchess interfered with her usual violence, and pressed Sunderland's claims on the Queen in angry letters, in which she forgot all decency, until she thoroughly disgusted her. In one letter, she says, 
Upon recalling everything to my memory that may fill my heart with all that passion and tenderness I once had for Mrs. Morley, I do solemnly protest I think I can no ways return what I owe her so well as by being honest and plain. As one mark of it, I desire you would reflect whether you have never heard that the greatest misfortunes that ever has happened to any of your family has not been occasioned by having ill advice and an obstinacy in their tempers. The Queen was strengthened in her resistance by Harley, who managed by his insinuating behaviour to retain the confidence of Marlborough and Godolphin, whilst secretly intriguing against them in the government. The Whigs saw that he was the real cause of the opposition to their wishes, and threatened to demand his dismissal from office. At last, after about three months' constant discussion and correspondence on the subject, the Queen was persuaded to give way. Godolphin's frequent threats of resignation helped to make her comply, and she was afraid lest the Whigs should turn their attacks on Harley, to whom she clung as a moderate Tory, and on whose opinions she had entire confidence. When Marlborough returned from Holland after the successful campaign which had followed Romilly's, and joined Godolphin in his urgent entreaties that she would give way, Anne could no longer resist, and on the 3rd of December, 1706, Sunderland's appointment to the secretaryship was announced, and was followed by the introduction of several other less important Whigs into the government, while several Whigs were promoted to the peerage. Harley was the only Tory of importance who retained his post, and the violent Tories were all excluded from the Privy Council. Marlborough and Godolphin had attained at last to a composite government, such as they had long desired. But whilst party intrigues seemed to be absorbing all the energies of the English government, a question of far greater importance was at length being brought to a successful issue. One of the last acts of William III had been to send a message to the Commons, pressing upon them the immediate necessity of taking steps to bring about a union between Scotland and England. Commissioners for this purpose had been named early in Anne's reign, but neither England nor Scotland showed much zeal in the matter, and it was allowed to drop. But as time went on, the urgent necessity for a union became daily clearer. Scottish affairs were much disturbed, and what was more, the Scottish Parliament showed intentions of naming a different successor to Anne from the one appointed by the English Act of Settlement. Godolphin was too timid and uncertain to adopt any vigorous measures, and only seemed perplexed by the difficulty of the question. At last, both Whigs and Tories combined to press upon him the necessity of appointing a new commission, and in April 1706, thirty-one commissioners from each side began their meetings. Chief amongst these commissioners, in knowledge and intellect, was Lord Somers, and to him, more than to any one man, the work of the Union is due. The other commissioners submitted to his powerful mind, and little by little the difficult points were settled. When the commissioners had done their work, the Union had to be approved by the Houses of Parliament in both countries. In Scotland it met with a violent opposition, but after some alterations was at last carried. Through the influence of the government and the Whigs, who were determined to see an end of the question, it was also carried in the English Parliament, and finally, on the 6th of March, 1707, the Act of Union became law. 
Its chief provisions were that there should be one kingdom, called Great Britain, one parliament, to which Scotland was to send forty-five members, about one-twelfth of the whole number, and one successor, the electress of Hanover, as decided in the English Act of Settlement. To the House of Lords, Scotland was to send sixteen peers, elected out of her whole peerage. The establishment of a government which satisfied the Whigs and the final settlement of the Union seemed to promise to Godolphin and Marlborough some rest and freedom from party intrigue. But they were soon to discover how impossible it is to govern in England according to their favorite scheme of a coalition. It was their fearfulness of joining themselves entirely to one party, lest they should lose influence or office by so doing, which in the end proved so fatal to them. Marlborough may have been sincere in his expressions of dislike to both political parties. We cannot wonder that the small intrigues in England disgusted and wearied him when his mind was fully enough occupied with the affairs of the Grand Alliance and the conduct of the war. But Godolphin's entire want of any political principles, his hesitating dealings first with one party and then with another, cannot be excused in a man who was at the head of the government. To have joined cordially with the Whigs, or to have remained true to the Tories and to the wishes of the Queen, would have been not only a more dignified, but in the end a more successful course of conduct. Harley's position in the government gave him abundant opportunity to intrigue in favor of the Tories. As Secretary of State for the Northern Department, he had constant access to the Queen, and whilst he still enjoyed the complete confidence of the Duke of Marlborough, was doing his utmost to inflame the Queen's irritation against the Duchess and against the Whigs. The Tories had another, still more powerful friend, and the Duchess a still more dangerous foe at court, a foe, moreover, whom she had unwittingly been the means of introducing herself. A desire to lessen her own duties at court, and at the same time to help a poor relation, had led the Duchess to ask the Queen to make a cousin of hers, Abigail Hill, who was in needy circumstances, one of her bedchamber women. She thought that Mrs. Hill, owing everything to her and being beside a person of very ordinary abilities, could not possibly exert an influence at court hostile to hers. But the Queen was one of those women who liked to lean on someone, and who had by nature a great amount of romantic tenderness for which she was compelled to find an object. She was wearied by the overbearing arrogance of the Duchess, whom she had once so fondly loved, and she found a great relief in the gentle, obsequious conduct of Mrs. Hill, who was entirely without pretensions. Besides this, Abigail shared the Queen's views in church matters and in politics. Clever enough to see in what ways the Duchess managed to make herself disagreeable to the Queen, she adopted quite opposite tactics. She tried to anticipate Anne's wishes, was humble and deferential in her manners, and agreed with all the Queen's opinions. Related to the Duchess through her mother, Mrs. Hill was also related to Harley through her father, and to him now she was of the greatest possible use. Through her he could impress all his views and wishes upon the Queen, and by her means he could irritate the Queen more against the Duchess, and through the Duchess against the Whigs. The Duchess, who in spite of all signs to the contrary, 
was entirely confident in her power over the queen, was slow to believe that any new person, and above all a creature so mean as her own dependent, could usurp any of the queen's favour. But at last it became impossible to doubt what was going on. The duke, who was informed of it whilst in Holland in June 1707, thought it would be easy to put a stop to it. If you are sure, he wrote to the duchess, that Mrs. Hill does speak of business to the queen, I should think you might speak to her with some caution which might do good, for she certainly is grateful and will mind what you say. The duchess spoke both to Mrs. Hill and the queen, but without any caution, blaming the queen with her usual violent language, both in conversation and in letters, for her confidence in Mrs. Hill. The queen's letter, humble as her letters always were, shows clearly the real state of things. I give my dear Mrs. Freeman many thanks for her letter, but I have so often been unfortunate in what I have said to you that I think the less I say to your last letter the better. Therefore I shall only in the first place beg your pardon once more for what I said the other day, which I find you take ill, and say something in answer to your explanation of the suspicions you seem to have concerning your cousin Hill, who is very far from being an occasion of feeding Mrs. Morley in her passion, as you are pleased to call it. She never meddles with anything. I believe others that have been in her station in former times have been tattling and very impertinent, but she is not at all of that temper, I hope, since in some part of your letter you seem to give credit to a thing because I said it was so, you will be as just in what I have said now about Hill, for I would not have any one hardly thought of by my dear Mrs. Freeman for your poor, unfortunate, but ever faithful Morley's notions or actions. Soon after, the Duchess's wrath was still more excited by discovering that Mrs. Hill had been secretly married to Mr. Masham, a gentleman whose place in the royal household was also owing to her favour, and that the Queen had been present at the wedding. On hearing this, she at once rushed to the Queen and heaped upon her the most violent reproaches for having connived at this act of concealment. The Duchess had no idea of trying to win back her former favour by soft words, and her angry reproaches only made matters daily worse. Meanwhile, the Whigs were growing more and more indignant at the influence which Harley had with the Queen. Some ecclesiastical appointments made by the Queen entirely in the high church interest, without consulting Godolphin or Marlborough, also caused much irritation. The state of things tended to make the Whigs distrustful of the good intentions of the two ministers, who themselves began to understand the intrigues of Harley, but did not venture to go against him for fear of offending the Queen. Marlborough seems to have been at times anxious to act more vigorously. He writes to Godolphin, I can't but think there should be no time lost in speaking plainly to Her Majesty, in letting her know what you and I think is her interest. If she be of another opinion, I think you and I should honestly let her know that we shall not be able to carry on her business with success, so that she might have time to take her measures with such as will be able to serve her. But though this letter was shown to the Queen, it produced no effect, for she evidently did not believe in their threats of resignation, and she answered by a letter in her usual tone of humble appeal to Marlborough, justifying her conduct, and begging him always to speak freely to her. Marlborough grew more and more disgusted with the whole matter. I am so weary of all this sort of management, he wrote to the Duchess, 
that I think it is the greatest folly in the world to think any struggling can do good when both sides have a mind to be angry. When I say this, I know I must go on in the command I have here, as long as the war lasts, but I would have nothing to do anywhere else. The Whigs' indignation with the government at last led them to join with the extreme Tories in a plan for attacking it. In the session of Parliament, which began in October 1707, a violent speech was made by Wharton in the House of Lords on the decay of trade and against the conduct of naval affairs, which was specially intended to irritate Marlborough by incriminating his brother, Admiral Churchill. Rochester and the extreme Tories proceeded to attack the conduct of the war. Here Marlborough defended himself with a dignity and an ability which carried conviction to all who heard him, so that Lord Somers moved a resolution which was unanimously carried, that no peace could be reasonable or safe, either for Her Majesty or her allies, if Spain and the West Indies were suffered to continue in the power of the House of Bourbon. To separate the extreme Tories and the Whigs, the government once more drew near to the Whigs, and the Queen even was induced to make some concessions to gratify them from fear lest their attacks should be turned on Harley. Marlborough was at last convinced that the coalition government could not stand. He hesitated a while, afraid of offending the Queen by urging the dismissal of Harley, but it became so clear to him that Harley was intriguing with a view of overthrowing the existing government and bringing back the Tories that it was imperative to take some decisive step. Suspicions were also aroused that Harley had been involved in treacherous negotiations with France. Both Godolphin and Marlborough, who were now assured of the firm support of the Whigs, informed the Queen that they would no longer serve with Harley. She persisted in refusing to dismiss him, and when, on the 9th February, a cabinet council was summoned, neither Marlborough nor Godolphin appeared at it. Harley and the Queen affected to notice nothing, and Harley opened the business amidst uneasy murmurs from the other ministers, till the Duke of Somerset took advantage of a moment's silence to say, I do not see how we can deliberate when the commander-in-chief and the Lord Treasurer are absent. The Queen had to break up the meeting, and on the 11th February, Harley resigned his office. He was doubtless influenced in so doing, by the thought that he was hardly strong enough then to form a Tory government himself, and that after a time he would be able, having entirely broken with Godolphin and Marlborough, to return to office with full power and the entire confidence of the Tories. With him retired St. John and some other Tories, and their places were filled by Whigs, though as yet no other member of the Junto but Sunderland was given a share in the government. The Whigs demanded that Summers should be made president of the council. Things went on as before. The Queen refused obstinately to give way, and the Whigs blamed Marlborough and Godolphin for her refusal. The state of things was complicated still further by the quarrels between the Duchess and the Queen, which daily increased in violence, and made the position of Marlborough and Godolphin very difficult. The Duchess continually charged the Queen with listening to no one but Mrs. Masham, and with still having communications with Harley, and all this naturally only increased the Queen's dislike to the Whigs, and led her to cling more than ever to Mrs. Masham. Marlborough and Godolphin, as usual, threatened to resign if Summers were not admitted into the government. 
but these threats were no more sincere than they had been before, and produced no effect upon the Queen. The Whigs grew more and more angry, and threatened the government with serious opposition. In the parliamentary elections in 1708, they exerted themselves to the utmost to obtain the return of Whig members. Sunderland even made use of the influence he possessed as member of the government to obtain the return in Scotland of members hostile to the government, and by this disloyal conduct deeply offended the Queen. But the Whigs at last discovered a means of influencing the Queen. They threatened to invite to England the heir apparent, the elector of Hanover, a proposal to which she had the strongest objection, and once more began their attacks upon the Admiralty, which were particularly painful to the Queen, as her husband, Prince George, was at its head. The Queen felt all the more bitterly the attacks against Prince George, because he was then dangerously ill. Fearful lest his last moments should be disturbed, she declared herself ready to give way to the wishes of the Whigs in order that they might leave off their attacks on the Admiralty. The Prince died on the 29th of October, 1709, and shortly afterwards Lord Somers was appointed President of the Council, Lord Wharton, Viceroy of Ireland, and Lord Orford, Head of the Admiralty. At last, the Whigs were in full possession of power, though the feelings of the Queen were more hostile to them than ever. End of section 21